Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. tuned in to Sci-Fi Fidelity, the podcast that brings you monthly science fiction television discussions and interviews. Remember to follow Den of Geek on Twitter and Facebook at Den of Geek US, and we are at Sci-Fi Fidelity. This is episode 23 for November of 2017. My name is Mike. And I'm Dave, and in this edition of Sci-Fi Fidelity, we'll be talking about villains we love, even though we're not supposed to. And show topics this month include a look at season one so far of The Gifted on Fox and our impressions of season two of Netflix's mega hit Stranger Things. Yeah, this will be an interesting one to talk about because both of those shows are either already finished or mostly into the season. So we'll be able to get some good discussion going. But our interview is with someone from a show that hasn't started yet even. So it's a spoiler free discussion with Ben Carlin who is the showrunner of Future Man on Hulu, which drops all 13 of its episodes on November 14th. So just so you know, spoilers are going to be in all of our segments for the episodes that have aired, or at least the two show topics. Our interview will be spoiler-free. But if you need to skip around or avoid spoilers altogether, here are the time codes for today's topics. Likeable Villains 147 the Gifted 1548 Stranger Things 3655 Future Man Interview 5755 Alright, and I'm really, really enjoying what this first discussion topic that we're having here, Dave, has elicited from our listeners on Facebook and Twitter. They actually got in the game on our likable villains topic, uh, villains that we aren't supposed to like. But for some reason, we do. We enjoy their their evil ways. Yeah, And at first, it was difficult coming up with my three. But as I stuck with it, you know, it wasn't as hard as I imagined. Well, I think what's difficult is once you start thinking of them, they keep coming in and then you have to nail it down to three. And that's not always easy, especially since you and I actually ended up picking two people from the same show, which we'll talk about. But I think we got a pretty good list. And I'm going to share with you at the end of our discussion, uh, what the listeners said on Facebook, because we got a lot of contributions. In fact, I think what I'll have to do from here on out is when we do our discussion topic or when we determine our discussion topic, we'll get some answers from social media to, to share as well. Cause that'll get some listener involvement going, but we have some really good choices here that the listeners did not pick. So I'm happy that we picked some unique choices and I'll go ahead and start. My first choice goes deep in the vault, and I had almost forgotten about him, and that's Scorpius from Farscape, the peacekeeper interrogator extraordinaire. (laughs) One of the creepiest-looking characters in all of sci-fi television. Which is what makes it so remarkable that he's actually likable. I mean, he doesn't start out as likable, certainly, and he definitely makes 
life very difficult for Crichton and the others. But uh, Scorpius is this half reptilian race called uh, Scarin, and he's half Sebation, which is basically humanoid. And he has to wear a suit to keep himself cool because he's got, you know, heat sensitivity. But his heat sensitivity also allows him to detect lies and be be one of the best interrogators that the peacekeeper force has. But what's cool is that his character does evolve into someone who kind of sees where humanity is coming from and starts to sympathize a little bit with Crichton. So I think that's probably part of why we like him. But really, it just boils down to he's so cool and creepy looking. Well, my first character is, I think it's fair to call his character iconic, and that is the cigarette smoking man from the (laughs) X-Files. Also creepy looking. (laughs) Yes, played by William B. Davis, who, who we also know as the elder Alex Sadler in Continuum. But I guess what it is I like about him, number one, no smoking in a federal government building? I don't care. I'm smoking anyway. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, it's it, it just that sinister character always standing back in the corner. You rarely see him sitting. And, of course, we're never sure about his motives. And then we end up finding out that he's really been watching over Mulder. And certainly we have those questions as to, well, if you're really on his side, why are you making things so difficult for him? And, uh, you know, I'm not sure we really get an answer to that 100 percent, but there's so much to like about him. And I'm just going to leave it at that. (laughs) I'm not sure I like him as a villain, but I'm not sure I like him as a person the way I do some of these other. (laughs) Well, I think the reason I like him is I, I think he just... It's almost like he's socially inept. It's that he has been in his line of work for so long. It's almost as if he doesn't know how to deal on a human level, which I guess is ironic given what the X-Files is about on a lot of levels. Kind of stuck in the past in some ways, too. So Yes, he is. Well, another character who I think becomes likable but doesn't start out that way is Q – from Star Trek The Next Generation. He's my next choice. One of my favorite characters. And I just think that he creates such difficulties for the crew of the Enterprise. And yet it really ends up that he has a journey. He has an arc, even though he's a guest star. You know, he has a time at the very beginning, the pilot episode of Star Trek The Next Generation, which, you know, encounter at Farpoint, he actually probably is the most dangerous and the most unlikable that he could be. But then he starts to become more fun and experimental and trying to see what he can dangle in front of them. Like he he dangles the temptation of joining the Q continuum in front of Riker at one point and gets his powers stripped at another point such that he learns a lot about sacrificing oneself and things like that. So obviously that journey, that transformation that he undergoes is a lot, a big reason why he is likable. But also, he's just such, got such cool powers. I mean, he pretty much can do anything, right? <laughs> well, yeah. And, and I think the other thing is he doesn't have that physically scary persona. I mean, you think about all the outfits that we see him in. Yeah. Mostly and captain's it, uniforms, it, but yeah. Right. I mean, as opposed to somebody like Scorpius or, or Cigarette Smoking Man, you know, they're, they're just kind of frightening on, on one level. Yeah. This guy's kind of a, a trickster god almost. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's a great way to put it. All right, now mine for my number two slot 
I'm going to really talk about two characters, both from Buffy the Vampire Slayer, but primarily Spike. And one of the things that I'll throw out there now is that I'm only on season four. I just watched Beer Bad, which uh, I've been reading a lot about uh, Buffy online as I've been watching it. And, and I realized that that episode is viewed with a lot of loathing in the Buffy community, but I thought it was kind of funny. So I understand, you know, sometimes you just can't help finding things out. I know Spike's role is going to change as the series goes on, and I'll just leave it at that. But but for now, I mean, number one, he's rocking the Billy Idol look, which is definitely cool. The English accent. Well, I just I like that you're using the present tense, because like Dave said, if you listen to our podcast, you know that this is a show Dave missed and you've been really binging it the last month or so. So the fact that you're on season four is pretty good. Yeah, and and he's just a fun character, and that you know he's a smart ass. He's got well, of course, this is a Joss Whedon show, so most of the characters have a lot of witty dialogue. But it just seems like Spike has even more, and that while he's bad, he just doesn't seem like he's that bad. And then as a companion, and I know this is a character you had on your list initially, and that's his girlfriend Drusilla. Uh, I love Drusilla. Yeah, and I think part of the appeal for Spike is that Drusilla, I mean, she kind of bosses him around the whole time. And even though he doesn't always give in, and and even though a lot of times he makes the impression that he's putting her in her place, he's really not. (laughs) Yeah, she rules. Yeah, she does. So I'm going to go with Spike. Uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing how his arc progresses, you know, throughout the you know the last three seasons or three and a half that I've got. Yeah, Drusilla was originally on my list. Definitely one of my favorites of all time. Great, great character. It's funny that both Drusilla and Spike are played by American actors, and yet they both have British accents that you would never <laughs> question at all. They're, they're pretty spot on. But uh, my next villain that I think is just top notch in terms of I love her is Olivia, the character of Olivia from 12 Monkeys. And without getting too much into her specific character arc that (laughs) ended season three, because I don't want to spoil anybody, Olivia is just such a great character to hate and yet love the way she's portrayed. And I don't know if it's just the the way that the actress portrays it, the, the delivery of the lines, but also the connivingness and the sheer intelligence where you can see that this character despite not having some of the powers that other characters in 12 monkeys have, she's able to see the weaving of time and how causality works and, and what she can do to affect things or steer things in the direction that she's been led to believe things are supposed to head. So she's really evil. You never know what she's going to do. She tries to get in the good graces of characters and then betrays them. Uh, several times. So I think that actually is what makes her so villainous, but I I don't know. I I have a, I have a little bit of trouble explaining why she's likable. Unlike the other two that I came up with, but she's just so cool. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, sometimes the likability I think is factored in because of their impact on the story arcs within the show. And certainly that would be the case for her. Yeah. Just, I guess the cool way that they surprise us, I think, is part of what makes them villains that we love. Yeah. All right. And then finally, I'm going to 
tapped the Joss Whedon pool once again, and Topher Brink from Dollhouse. Oh wow, he's a, and, is he a villain? <laughs> well, you know what? I, I obviously Wayne and I have been podcasting Dollhouse on Sci Fi TV Rewatch for for the last few months, so I've really gotten to examine his character, and I really do believe he is a villain in that he is this godlike character who's so self-absorbed and he's certainly the epitome of the scientist run amok without considering the consequences of his or her science. And while he didn't invent the system that the dollhouse uses to imprint the dolls, he has certainly developed it many times over. And when we are introduced to the character and when we really see the character he's this childlike man mm-hmm. and when you see you know his office area the place that he essentially lives when an outsider comes in the first thing they think is that some teenager or some kid lives there yeah and for me that is even more villainous because I don't think he does it deliberately. I don't think he puts up that childlike facade to hide what it is he's really doing. That's just him. And I think that makes me dislike him. And I don't want to say hate because I don't hate the character, but dislike him even more. And if you have followed the series, you know how his arc changes and you know that eventually, uh, you know, he does have to come to terms with what it is he's done. And you you feel bad because on the one hand, does he really deserve that ending? Yeah, maybe he does. Well, he's just kind of like an awkward teenager a lot. And I think that has some of its charm. I, I guess I always thought of the head of Rossum, the various heads of Rossum to be the real villains. But yeah, I guess he was complicit, right? Yeah, and I guess we didn't really get to see enough of them. Yeah. Yeah, could have gone with DeWitt, but... Uh... <laughs> yeah, but those are some great choices, and I do want to spend a little amount of time sharing with you what other people said on social media. A couple people, actually, Christopher and Maria, I talked about Q being a trickster god. They actually thought Loki was a really great character, a villain that they loved. Of course, that's from the movies. But Christopher also shared uh, Spike as one of his choices. He also liked the mayor from Buffy the Vampire Slayer season, oh, season yes. three. <laughs> yeah. So you've seen that one. Yes. And of course, anyone in Liberate, which I can't argue with either. Linda says, now, I don't know these characters. Did you watch Blake's Seven, Dave? I did not. It certainly run across my radar a few times. We need to watch that. She says, Sarvalin and Avon. I have no idea who those are, but I plan on finding out. And then uh, Aaron chimed in with Kilgrave from Jessica Jones. Great choice. Great choice. Uh, Barb says Ben from Lost. I'm not sure if I qualify him as a villain, but I guess you could see him that way. Yeah, well, I I think he certainly started out that way, but... No, that's true. Yeah, at the beginning. Sometimes I forget about his origins. But yeah, that was uh, Barb's choice. uh, Michael says the Beast from Magicians, and that was a great character that was introduced in season two. Well, not introduced, but we met more of his whimsical character and he is a whimsical villain for sure and then jada brought up a couple of great choices gold ducat from deep space nine although i just i don't he's not a likable villain for me he's just a villain that i hate (laughs) but he did also did uh contribute little finger jada did so i i 
I don't even watch Game of Thrones, and I know who Littlefinger is. <laughs> so that was a good choice. And then, of course, Corey was the one that reminded me about Olivia from 12 Monkeys and made me put her on my list, and I couldn't agree more, Corey. Definitely a likable villain, probably one of my most likable villains. So thank you guys so much for contributing those on social media, and I'll be sure to try and involve you guys in these discussions moving forward so that we can read them all out here. But we got a show topic to get into, and for those of you who have been following The Gifted, I don't think it was necessarily something that I expected to be as good as it has been and and that I would enjoy it as much as I have been, Dave. Um, I certainly feel the exact same way, and I'm just loving it. You know, I love every character that's been presented. Uh, I like the storylines and, you know, we'll, we'll get into that in a few minutes. So by the time you listen to this podcast, six episodes of the gifted will have aired. There's going to be 10 episodes in season one. And what we have is an alternate timeline in which the X-Men have disappeared. And, you know, I, I think the thing that I like more than I dislike the idea that basically what, you know, Marvel has said here, it's like, well, we don't care. You know, so we've got a timeline here with some X-Men. We got a timeline here with some mutants with the X-Gene over there. It is what it is. And, you know, I'm kind of fine with that. I think it's very creative. Because I think what happens sometimes in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. is you wonder, where are the Avengers? And how come they're not getting involved? Yeah. And what Matt Nix said is that I think one of the great favors that Days of Future Past did for all of us was establish that there are many streams. The short answer is we exist in one of those streams, in its own universe. That said, we do share some things with movies and comics, but the idea is we're just doing our own thing. And I like that. You know, it is what it is. Like it for what it is. So we got a lot of characters, and, and I don't want to go through all of them in terms of the actors, but but certainly... Reed Strucker, played by Stephen Moyer, is certainly one of the principal characters, and, and I'm sure watchers of True Blood recognize him immediately. Yeah, that was great to see him. I haven't seen him in anything since True Blood, so I'm sure he's been in stuff, but this is the first time I've seen him since then. Right. Uh, his wife, Caitlin, played by Amy Acker, who obviously I know from Dollhouse, you know from Person of Interest, I didn't realize she was in that. Oh my gosh, she, her character is awesome. She's a likable villain, speaking of likable villains. Yeah, because I didn't make it that far. But I'm just really digging every character. And obviously the basic premise is that this guy, Reed Strucker, works for Sentinel Services, which is this agency that is trying to apprehend and imprison the mutants that, I guess, get out of line for lack of a better phrase and amy acker's his wife and what they discover one day is that both their children turn out to be mutants now i find it interesting that the girl already knew she had these powers and kept it to herself and the boy who was being bullied discovers his as a result of anger that he ends up directing at the bullies. And, you know, one of the things that is kind of hovering over this entire series is the societal attitudes towards the mutants and that there is this hatred that is really raining down on them so that they really have to either go into seclusion or 
keep to themselves that that they are in fact mutants. Now, this is an idea that has been derived on for other shows. Uh, the Tomorrow People springs to mind for one, but it really is something that started with the X Men. So when you start to think, oh, haven't we seen this before? But it's the whole premise of the X Men universe, and this is just another take on it. And I think they do a great job of making us see the perspective of the humans as well as the mutants. I mean, obviously things are getting out of hand in terms of the police state that's being enacted on innocent users of powers, but you can see how it could get to this point based on the dangers that these people can pose just in not having control over their powers yet. Right. So why don't we first look at the Strucker family? Because I think the beauty of the show is you can't really say this character or that character is at the center of the story arc, because that's really not true. They all are working together. But basically what happens is once Reed Strucker discovers that his children are mutants, he, of course, rallies to their defense. And it's very difficult because on the one hand, he spent his professional career prosecuting them and putting them behind bars and he ends up getting caught and he gets imprisoned and so the tables have turned and and, and i love that scene where they've got him in custody and they're basically trying to treat him the way he has treated mutants that have sat across the table from him and he's like dude it's not gonna work (laughs) Well, I like also that he clearly is being hypocritical from the very get-go. As soon as his kids display their abilities, he doesn't sit there and wonder about the moral problems with him thinking, oh, my kids did something dangerous, but I have to protect them. I'm not going to turn them in. He, He never stops to think about that. And that's really where a lot of people's hypocrisy comes in. Even the main guy that's in charge of the Sentinel Services, Jace Turner, you know, even he, he's got his own personal hook that brings him to this profession. And so no one is without their own personal connection to either pull them in one direction or another. So he admits that he is being a hypocrite by asking for help from the mutants that he formerly prosecuted. Right. And, you know, in the background is the July 15th event in which a number of humans and a number of mutants were killed as a result of a supposedly peaceful demonstration gone awry. And I think we certainly see, you know, the problem there that the mutants receive all of the blame, but are they really to blame? I mean, we haven't gotten a lot of detail on that. And I suspect we will because they have been using flashbacks judiciously throughout the first six episodes. But the other thing I think that's coming out, especially with the, children and when i say children i mean most of them are teenagers that were really focused on is that they don't know how to control their powers right so so some of this destruction some of these things that they're getting blamed for okay fine but is it really their fault right let them control their powers put them in some sort of detention so that they can (laughs) calm themselves down and control it rather than immediately making them culpable for it. I think that's a a really great anchor, though, because we could wonder why they aren't cutting them some slack unless we factor in the July 15th event, because obviously that's the anchor of everyone's discomfort and prejudice and 
anger and all kinds of feelings wrapped up into that one event that informs every perception that they have moving forward, whether it's a teenager learning their powers or a genuine criminal exploiting its, his or her powers. So you could see how that July 15th event is kind of like putting the blinders on. Yeah. And one of the f- most fascinating characters for me is Caitlin Strucker, played by Amy Acker. And, and I know when we were talking a couple weeks ago that you felt you were a little bit disappointed in how she came off in the first episode. I still am kind of disappointed. I, I know she's got the medical abilities. She does provide that service to the mutant underground. But at the same time, she's always fraught. And she's always being the mother who wants to protect her children And I think superhero shows in general do this too much where they're like, no, you can't go out there and use your powers. You need to stay here and be safe. I'm your mother, you know, and I just would like her to be a little bit more (laughs) well-rounded. Well, I guess for me, to be fair, it's a lot to process in a short period of time. And of course, episode six, which is the most recent one to air, really forces her to come to terms with the fact that, yes, her teenagers are going to have to be soldiers in this upcoming war, whether she likes it or not. And and as she says, I don't like it, but I understand it. And then again, as you said, with her medical, and she was a nurse. Now she's forced to be a doctor. Yeah. <laughs> which is sort of like, uh, you know, what we see in a lot of shows where, you know, somebody with a, a you know, a little bit of medical training is the, is the best we have. But also... A big part of, of, you know, this season one is the development of the mutant underground as essentially a safe house. And I get the impression that there are these mutant underground safe houses all around the country, right? Yeah. Oh, no, they they even mention some of the uh, undergrounds that are getting raided. And so their compound, which seems to still be secure, is taking on all the extra people from the surrounding safe houses. So yeah, there's definitely a bunch of them around there. Right. Well, I think we're 78% over capacity now with this uh, latest group. But, you know, one of the other things that comes out of the Strucker family is this interest in the siblings because the doctor that's now had Jace sell his soul to him to, for him to get at the siblings. I mean, there's something about, siblings having power. So I don't know if that's unusual. I mean, they're certainly make it, making it seem that way. I don't know. I think it's mostly because of the nature of their powers and how powerful they are. I mean, I think we're just starting to get an inkling of what Andy is capable of. But yeah, you're right. It's like what makes their powers in particular so special because even just the girl with portal powers is probably one of the most uh, useful skills that, that they've come up with. Well, right. And we even see Andy and Lauren use their powers together to blow the wheel off of the uh, the prison bus. Right. So, you know, we talked a little bit about Caitlin and, and you know, coming to terms with all of that. And I, I like when Lorna tells her there at the end, I guess it was in episode six, I think, that this is their new normal. And we are going to a war. And, you know, the whole idea of their approach, the mutants, that is, is moving from defensive to offensive. And Caitlin doesn't like it, but, you know, I I think she's going to be fine. And I think that it's really good to have two different viewpoints within the group, 
the people who have been there for a long time and the people that, that are just getting there and putting a fresh perspective on it. I think that's necessary. It's like they're a proxy for the audience in that, in that respect. And speaking of necessary, uh, when are we going to get cool nicknames for both of them? (laughs) Yeah. I like that. This is one of the first superhero shows we've had where they acknowledge their superhero names. I mean, everyone's so coy about it in both the DC and the Marvel shows. So I'm glad that they came right out and said it. (laughs) Well, but not in everyday exchanges. I mean, you know, Marcos goes by Marcos. He doesn't go by Eclipse. Right. But in talking about the characters, I I think it's reasonable to talk about Lorna and Marcos together. And the first time we see them in chronologic time, not necessarily in in terms of the series, is a flashback to three years before when they're scoping out a potential location for the Mutant Underground HQ. And they talk about whether they appreciate or despise their abilities. Yeah, I like that conversation a lot. Yeah, and and you wonder whether that's going to be something that gets expanded on. I mean, I know they only have ten episodes, and and there's only four left, and you know we're in the middle of of something big. But then we find out, of course, you know the, the big plot detail with these two is that Polaris is in jail and pregnant, and then we're talking about Caitlin, you know, having a difficult time with the kids, you know, actually being involved in things. And, and, you know, we see at the end of uh, episode six, Lorna taking it upon herself. And I think rightly so to start training the kids to use their powers, because what's the alternative to have them defenseless, helpless, or at least not being able to control their powers, which could hurt the mutants just as much as the humans. But I think it makes sense for Lorna, given what you mentioned, the way we first see Lorna and Mark Marcos meeting each other and having that, great uh, aurora borealis effect of the magnetic powers meeting the light bending powers is the fact that Lorna does celebrate her powers. Whereas at that time, Marcos did not. And so for Lorna to be the one training people in their powers and asking them to embrace them, I think makes a lot of sense for her character. Yeah. Uh, and, And then I love the scene when Marcos and Reed Strucker are in the truck and seeking advice on being a dad from yeah. Reed. It's just a, just a really wonderful scene. You know, maybe my favorite character outside of Amy Acker's character is Johnny. Well, he's got cool powers, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. And I, I guess one of the things I like about him is that, well, number one, he's just cool. Yeah. But he's got that guilt thing going on for having left Pulse behind when he thought his best friend was dead. Now, of course, he turned out to be alive and working with Sentinel Services, which is what the the Baton Rouge mission is all about. And then, I don't know if you, you noticed it, there's that mention of his father being somebody that's important and that he's got to live up to something. So who was his father? I mean, did well, I miss it? Well, or? Then, no, you didn't. But see, there's a lot of stuff in this series that is for the comics viewers. Okay. So, you know, we appreciate it on a certain level, not having read any of these things, but a lot of people watch it and they look for things to talk about. I mean, like, for example, Polaris in the comic, the one thing I do know is supposedly a daughter of Magneto from the X-Men. So, so, you know, there's a whole background that whenever you hear a little mention like that, it's probably just a nod to the comics. (laughs) And that makes sense. (laughs) She's the daughter of Magneto. Yeah. Similar powers, which makes you wonder what the kids' powers are going to be. <laughs> right. 
if that even happens. We we don't know the genetics yet. But someone in our audience should tell us who is Thunderbird's dad, <laughs> so we can uh, have that context. <laughs> All right. Now, it seems all along that there's a relationship that he has with Sonya, a.k.a. Dreamer. And uh, you know how I feel about redheads. So uh, Elena Satine. Oh, my gosh. Yes. She was on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. season one and loved her then as well. So I, I like seeing her in the show. Right. But she's now caught in the middle with the situation with Clarice. And on the one hand, we've got Clarice who can't stop opening portals and then eventually the police you know they, they get on the other side and they're ready to take down the mutants so she's having difficulty controlling her powers and, and fortunately lauren comes to the rescue and and you know with her power she's able to close them but not without a lot of effort and we get to a situation where they have to have clarice open a portal and I forget what it is. It's something like they, they need her to be able to focus on something. So, Well, she has no what, emotional hook to open a portal. I think she's she's gotten a little bit shy. What is it called when, you, when you're in baseball, when you get a little bit shy and, and so you, you lose some of your mojo? That's why she can't open the portal because of her difficulties that she had where she was going crazy with it. And the only thing that can help is an emotional hook. I think Sonya's powers to implant memories, which is what they finally do to, to get her on board must be the most burdensome power that I've seen in the show. Cause she has to decide when is it going to be something that is useful and ethical and not going to be filling me with guilt. I mean, even what she does to Jace must really make her think, Oh, I wasn't finished. And I just tortured this man needlessly. Uh, I don't know about that, but <laughs> with with Jace, Jace is but, not a likable villain. <laughs> yeah, but but I I agree with everything you said, and and she's placed in that situation where she really had no other choice. Now, I guess you could say, on the other hand, no, she did have a choice, but then mutants would have died yeah. had she not made that call. Now, I guess you could say they should have come clean immediately. But the other thing is, once Clarice confronts her about what she's done, uh, Dreamer says, well, I can remove the memory. And she says, no. Yeah. Odd. I mean, she is sorry for having done it. So I was a little surprised she didn't opt to have those memories you know, removed, but it is what it is. All right. So we've been talking about Jace Turner, and he's our Sentinel Services character who it's very personal. I think you alluded to this a few minutes ago. It's very personal for him. Yes, he lost his daughter in the July 15th incident, and, and there were a lot of people killed, but he's now willing to put the law aside to get you know these characters. And I mean, yes, they're powerful. Yes, Polaris is powerful, but... Is she that powerful that you're willing to throw the Constitution out the window? Well, I think it wouldn't have mattered. Uh, he already was pretty s strong in his beliefs. We didn't know about his daughter until several episodes in. It wasn't until Dreamer did her thing where he had to lose his daughter all over again because he had forgotten that she was dead for four years. That's when he threw everything out the window. I mean, the guy, his coworker even says, well, we don't have a court order. I don't care. Every phone must be tapped. So yes. I think that was the. Uh... Say hello to a new era of mental health care. 
Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. The breaking point. And, and I mean, I get that Lorna was on his watch and he lost her. So I get that, but... Still, and then as I mentioned, he he makes the proverbial deal with the devil to get reinstated. First of all, he he's not even supposed to be there. And, and you know, as he says, he takes that one guy's uh, access card, <laughs> lets himself into his office, and he's you know, if you want to turn me in, I'll be in my office. Well, this is the, the yeah, this is like Doctor Mengele here. He he wasn't willing to deal with the extreme faction of the Sentinel services, but now he is, and I think that the rest of the season at least is going to probably tie into what this guy's agenda is up to. So we don't get to discuss that here, but I'm sure that's where the gifted is headed. Okay. And, and then just one final uh, piece to this ever evolving puzzle. You know, we had the big prison break arc in, in the first five episodes and we're introduced to a character that used to have a relationship with Marcos. He goes to the cartel, which is, as it sounds, you know, this organized crime. And he wants to get information about the prisoner movement. And it turns out that his ex-girlfriend, Carmen, is now in charge. And if he wants her to play ball, then she owes him. And it appears episode seven you know, she's calling in a favor. Oh, really? Okay. So that's next week. <laughs> yes. All right. Yeah. I'd forgotten about that. So yeah. Can't wait to see uh, where the gifted headed. And uh, hopefully our audience is following along with that as well. I'm going to be moving on to a topic now that hopefully people have had a chance to view most of, and that's Stranger Things season two. And I remember when I brought this up as a potential topic for November, I'm thinking, okay, it's only coming out on October 27th. Are the viewers going to have enough time to watch 
all nine episodes and have us be able to talk about it in a comfortable way. And now, uh, Michael, you're a funny guy. And now it feels like there's been way, it seems like it's an old topic now. That's how, how strange it is. So see how I dropped that word in there, but stranger things season two is a completely different beast from season one. And whether or not you think that's for the better or not, I'd be curious to hear. Cause I do think that there are some people who argue that this is better. And I think a majority of people think this was even better than season one. And some who think that it lost some of the horror elements of course, nostalgia is huge with Stranger Things, such that it's now being imitated elsewhere, including in the, the show Future Man, which is featured in our interview segment, also banks heavily on nostalgia as well. So I think that's a big part of the success of the show. That's, I think, why I like it, because I was 12 in 1984, same age as these kids. And so I really felt like they were proxies for me in a lot of ways. But this show, what we know so far from season one is that there's a secret government project, MK Ultra, which is a real government project, the, the CIA mind control project that had a lot of experimentation with LSD and things that they could do for interrogation techniques and stuff like that. They've taken that seed of history and turned it into something that went beyond the supposed end of the project in 1973 and thought, what would the government do with it? in the cold war of the eighties and try and use it to spy on the Soviets by using psychic powers, remote viewing, clairvoyance, things like that. And so they subjected pregnant women to various drugs and apparently 11 who the series is pretty much centered around is an outcome of that experiment and was a kept prisoner in a government facility and her escape is pretty much what starts the whole action off because of course her powers have unwittingly opened a gate to another dimension because she uses this other dimension to carry out her remote viewings at the behest of the government. And she, she accidentally opens up a gate that perhaps want to invade our world and take it over and have hostile intent. Now, is this really the multiverse theory? Because, you know, we even see at the end of the, the final episode of season two, the the black and white image of the school. Yeah, we see that the shadow beast is uh, lording over Hawkins Middle School, which is where the dance is taking place in the real world. So, yeah, it is a parallel world in terms of the buildings are still there and everything looks the same. But, yeah, that's a good point. It's a world that's just a little bit beside ours, but they call it upside down. It's like the other side of the of the playing board. I think is is the analogy they use in season one, but it takes place in Hawkins, Indiana. 1983 is, is season one, 1984. A year later is season two, this lab Hawkins lab, which is supposedly run by the department of energy, but you know, that's just a <laughs> official stamp that's put on the secret government uh, project. And this group of kids, D and D players, kind of nerdy uh, guys that bike around town. they, spend all hours at each other's houses and will one of the boys gets grabbed in season one. And that actually sets up everything that happens in season two as well, because he spends all of season one in the upside down and they're trying to rescue him. Uh, his mother, Joyce, of course, isn't believed by many people that her son is still out there. She thinks maybe he's a spirit and a ghost that's haunting her, but actually he's just right there. But, on the upside down version of the world. So I think it, in that sense, season one and season two are quite different because season one feels like 
a haunting or a a spirit based uh, horror show, whereas uh, season two is more of a sci fi, almost like an alien invasion type of scenario. Now, should we talk about who grabs him? How he got grabbed? Well, the Demogorgon is the main villain of season one. One creature, one creature that's human in form, except obviously the head part is much different, (laughs) but, you know, standing upright on two feet. And we don't know that there's anybody else in the Upside Down besides this Demogorgon. But season two, of course, dissuades us of of that notion. But... Yeah, the the end of that season one is is Eleven sacrificing herself to get rid of this one beast and rescuing Will, who is supposedly free, but then coughs up a little slug at the very end of the finale, leaving everyone wondering what's that all about. And of course, it's not over. And that's pretty much where season two picks up. So that's what we know so far. But I'll tell you one thing that has changed immediately because of the fact that it's now centered around Will in season two is that Mike who was one of my favorite characters in season one. He was the emotional core, the one that brought Eleven into the fold. And now he's just kind of on the sidelines taking care of Will and his friends get most of their separate storylines where, where he's on the sidelines. So did you find that interesting that Mike is no longer at the center of things? Well, I did. And on, on a lot of levels, I really like that because, you know, I, we know that with season one, I, I think they won the award for best cast or something like that, or ensemble cast. But you look at each character individually, and for instance, my wife really does not like Dustin what? very much. I, I, I love Dustin. I love Dustin. I had Mike, friends like Dustin, so that's why I like him. And Mike, I mean, there was a certain annoying quality about him that I really couldn't get past, but. It was so overshadowed in season one by Lucas that, oh, my God, I hated Lucas. And I and I so wanted his attitude to change in season two. And I was so relieved that it did. And now he's my favorite character uh, of the four boys. Lucas was very abrasive in season one. He was always shooting down people's ideas. But, yeah, he gets his own story. So I just thought it was weird that Mike kind of retreated. But other characters got to come to the forefront. You mentioned Dustin and Lucas. And Dustin, of course, gets his side plot where he is taking care of what he thinks is an unknown amphibian. But even after he finds out what it really is, he feels protective of it, which I found interesting. But the main thing was I thought it was interesting that because a year has passed, everyone's kind of thought that this was over. And I think a big part of them wants to just move forward as though nothing bad happened. Because you think, why didn't, doesn't Dustin realize that this thing is from the upside down? Well, he wouldn't think that way a year later. You know, they're kids. They're resilient. They've moved past it. Right. But it goes back to their core element that friends don't lie. Yeah. And I think that's the hardest thing to understand. I mean, yes, they're kids. They're, they're in eighth grade. So we get that. But. On the other hand, they're a lot more mature than their years, you know, it, it would dictate, I think. Well, not to mention Dustin, of all people. He's the one that really lives by those rules. And sure. for him to be the one that's deceptive. Yeah, you're right. That's very strange. But another element that changes for season two, which I really liked, was the fact oh, that me too. he became sort of a crony, a sidekick for Steve, one of the most unlikable characters in season one. And Steve's arc is just wonderful, where he 
realizes that Nancy is not really for him. They've had a relationship for the past year, but he, in the end, kind of acquiesces to Jonathan, who I think is uh, more matched to Nancy, and Nancy knows it, and Steve knows it. So the fact that he then is able to kind of have a a little bromance with Dustin, (laughs) or a mentorship relationship, really. He's mentoring Dustin in the ways of being a popular kid who, who knows how to win friends and influence people, you know, young Padawan. Yeah. Dustin's the outcast and here he's being brought into the fold. So I really like that dynamic that they have as they try to capture the, uh, grown up version of D'Artagnan, the little amphibian (laughs) creature. But anyway, Nancy is an interesting character too in season two, because she is obsessed over this guilt that she feels over Barb such that, the anger and the drunkenness that she indulges in that kind of alienate her from Steve helps her make that transition to Jonathan where she is able to get Jonathan to do what Steve wouldn't perhaps, which is to go investigate Hawkins and get some kind of proof, some kind of closure because they're lying to Barb's parents about her being gone and her Barb's parents, you know, think she might still be out there. And, and so that motivates Nancy to do that thing because Nancy and Jonathan had their own side plot last year. And the fact that Nancy's able to do this thing where she goes to Hawkins lab with a tape recorder and gets Owens on tape confessing to what they're doing there and brings it to the investigative journalist, Murray, the conspiracy theorist in town was just a great arc. I mean, it really unfolded logically clearly uh, and with a good pace to it and it allowed for a nice little moment between Jonathan and Nancy where they finally came together. Well, you know what I like about her is that I mean there's a lot of things I like about her, but there's no questioning the bravery of of all of these characters, the young boys uh, as well as the teenagers, but I think with her she's smart enough to recognize the consequences involved in what it is they're actually doing. And I don't mean with the monsters. I mean, breaking into Hawkins lab, for instance, you know, making the surreptitious recording. I mean, the young boys, I don't know that they process all of that the way she does. Right. And I just really love the fact that that she's willing to do that. And as you said, you know, motivated more than anything by her friend Barb and friends stick with friends, which is kind of the mantra of the series. Exactly. And I think that's more for the younger kids than the older kids, but certainly there's a sense of loyalty. And I think that kind of builds too with this crisis that they're all going through. I mean, it brings them closer together, even Nancy and Mike, who still have fights, you know, now they have some common ground in this uh, upside down stuff. But uh, we mentioned Lucas, he has a new subplot with the new girl, Max, who actually plays video games and, and rides a skateboard. And and they have uh, a great evolution for that relationship. I do wish Max had had more to do besides be a love interest. She did have a great moment where she told her brother to get lost and that she was not going to take his crap anymore. But I do hope to see her character maybe fleshed out in season three. And then uh, Eleven, of course, has her own separate storyline as well, which was both good and bad in some ways. Certainly the part of Hopper keeping her safe helped answer a lot of questions we had at the end of season one, when, when the chief was leaving Eggos out in the woods and 11 was supposedly gone. 
but the fact that they were able to show us in flashbacks how this came about also helps us watch this evolution of kind of a father and daughter. Cause remember Hopper did lose his daughter and that fact was why we saw him in such, such a down in the dump state at the beginning of the series. So the fact that 11 is now replacing something that he lost in his life and 11 is being kept safe, but wants to get out there, help her friends and even find out some more about herself is just a great way to take this character, a great direction to take her rather than involving her in the attack against the new threat from the upside down, at least not until the last, gosh, I guess it's the last two episodes is when Elle finally comes back and helps them with the, the big beastie. Right. And I think it's easy to be critical of Hopper and, and the way he forces her basically to be on house arrest. And we understand he thinks he's doing it for her own good and he's not wrong. On the other hand, she is a 12 year old or 13 year old, however old she is. And to keep her locked away uh, and he's learning as he goes. And and I think that's the beauty of his character is that he really does feel an emotional bond. Is she a replacement for his daughter? Well, kind of, but well, that's why he's so overprotective. He doesn't want to lose someone else the way he lost his daughter. So I think that explains why he acts so over the top. <laughs> right. And I really would like to see that relationship work in season three and continue. I think that's implied at the end, you know, he, yeah. he's wearing the blue bracelet around his wrist. That was uh, Sarah's hairband that, that she had to give up when, when she lost her hair during chemo. And then if you look at the dance at the end, when she's dancing with Mike, Elle is wearing that blue bracelet. So, you know, that's kind of a passing on of this is going to happen now and it's going to be a good thing. And then, out in the open thing, especially since Dr. Owens so kindly provided him with the birth certificate that proves he's the father of L. So, or of Jane, sorry. But uh, we did get a couple new characters in season two. Kali, who is number eight, another subject, which is somebody, something that people speculated during the hiatus might be a storyline that could be explored. She's taken to a life of crime in Chicago. Her group of outcasts are going after the people responsible for the experimentation and the imprisonment of children at the Department of Energy Hawkins lab. She's escaped it, of course, through some very different powers that she has and has taken to a life of crime and revenge that she wants to drag Eleven into. Elle, of course, finds out about her sister by discovering her mother through some papers that are left in the cabin that she's in with Hopper. But it's really just a standalone episode, episode seven, where she sees maybe what could have been had she not met Mike and the other boys. And I think she has her eyes opened to whether or not revenge could be something that she could uh, carry out or whether now she's going to take a different tack. And, and I think at the end there, she decides that she's not going to be like number eight. Now, are you aware that this is a hugely divisive episode in the stranger things community? Well, I just know that it's not my favorite do you, are you saying some people really liked it? Some people really hated it. Feel like no, it, I didn't. It, I didn't it, like it. No. Wow. See, I really did. And I mean, I get the fact that it is a standalone to a certain extent, but I, I guess I feel like we did learn so much that 
is going to, I think, become important down the road. Just as you were saying a minute ago, it really shows that Elle is not going to choose this life, or at least at this point, and she walks away from it. And, and I think that's a lot harder for her to do than, than I think we, we think. I mean, she is a young kid who's finally got some people that she can be friends with out in the open, so to speak, as opposed to living in Mike's basement in that little tent thing that he's created. But as you said, the fact that there is another test subject who escaped somehow, but her power is completely different. Well, it's power of illusion. It explains why she's able to escape, I think, because of her power being different, uh, being able to create images in people's minds rather than uh, the psychokinetic and, and telepathy that, that Eleven has. So, yeah, I think it was just wasted potential. It could have been so much better. I, maybe it could have used another episode to develop it a little bit more. I do think what came out of episode seven was the fact that Dr. Brenner, who we thought was gone in the destruction of the school last year, is still alive. The suggestion that he's still alive. Uh, I mean, say it ain't so. We don't have proof, but... It's implied by the guy that they corner, Ray, the, the guy who gave uh, Jane's mother <laughs> electrotherapy, says that he'll get, give up Dr. Brenner if they'll leave him alone. So I think it's implied that he's around, and I think that's the one lingering mystery that's left over from season two. There were a bunch left over from season one, but this is the one thing that's a loose end. Is Dr. Brenner still alive? <laughs> but... He basically was replaced somewhat by Dr. Sam Owens, played by Paul Reiser, who was very much giving a nod to his character in Aliens throughout this uh, season, which was cool. I mean, obviously, a lot of the characters, including Winona Ryder and Paul Reiser, harken back to those days and shows that they were on. And of course, so does the Goonie himself, Sean Astin, who plays Bob Newby, is also in there uh, as another nod to a, a... a movie that's very similar to Stranger Things. Even though he's kind of a plain, normal guy, his insight and intelligence is actually instrumental in solving some of the puzzles that they need to solve in order to find Hopper, for one thing, but also just get a sense of what Will is going through. So the fact that he goes through what he goes through and then finally sacrifices himself for them is just a great heroic storyline for this otherwise very plain character. And it was completely unexpected the way his character went. Cause I thought he was going to be kind of like a, a thorn in their side rather than someone that that would help. Yeah. But the main thing that I wanted to say about Paul Reiser is that he is no match for Dr. Brenner. And I think he was a very much watered down government villain because I think in the end, the real villain role in this series goes to Billy, who is the ne'er-do-well stepbrother of Max And he just seems to cause trouble for Steve at the school where Steve used to be the King Jock. Now here comes Billy's uh, more powerful force on the basketball court, among other things. And he's obviously an abused teenager. His father is, is not a good guy. And we don't learn that until later on in his arc, but I'm not sure that it's enough because he doesn't really get any kind of redemption. I mean, I guess Steve didn't either (laughs) in season one, but Billy is just kind of like the one person who doesn't get his happy ending at the end of this season, because pretty much everything's, if they wanted to end the show here, they could easily have done that. 
Lucas gets to kiss Max. L gets to kiss Mike. You know, it seems to be ending well for everyone except Billy. So I'm just wondering how they're going to use him in season three, if they are at all. And whether or not he got his just desserts just from Max yelling at him and almost hitting him with the spiky bat, you know? Well, right. And I think really the the biggest question surrounding his character is whether or not he's going to cut his mullet. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, it's just classic. They really nailed a lot of the looks of people and the environment. So I have to give them credit for that much more so than like a show like the Americans, which also takes place in the eighties where they don't really always get it right the way that stranger things does. So I love this show. Can't wait to see what season three and season four, I believe they're ending it after that. Uh, but it's definitely a phenomenon, no doubt about it. So uh, hopefully our listeners are enjoying that show out there. But uh, we actually have a show to preview in our interview segment, and we're going to be talking to Ben Carlin, the showrunner of Future Man on Hulu. This is a time travel comedy, Dave, which normally would strike fear into my heart. (laughs) Yeah, me also. You haven't seen this, have you? I have not. You have got to check this show out. I am very picky about my time travel. This show has done it right. It tries to do some of the same things that Stranger Things does with homages and nods to shows like back to the future the terminator uses elements of both of those shows blatantly you know very clear references to those movies and in fact starts out with a premise of a janitor who kind of a down on his luck guy named josh futterman he's just playing video games and it turns out the video game he's playing seemingly unwinnable when he wins it is the test that is made to select the savior of the future who will be able to help the soldiers of the future a la Terminator to prevent the future that unfolds. But of course that's the same plot as the last Starfighter <laughs> as well. It also sounds like Ender's game. Yeah. So there's a lot of elements of stories we know, but it takes it in a direction that I think you'll find very unexpected. It's hilarious adult comedy. There's no shortage of F words in this one. But it is great. And the time travel is great and the comedy is great. So I'll let Ben Carlin, the showrunner, talk about it. He's an Emmy award-winning producer. He's got eight Emmys under his belt. He's best known for his work as producer on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. He's also the co-creator of The Colbert Report, along with Stewart and Stephen Colbert. And he also wrote and produced for one of my family's favorite shows, Modern Family. And now he's lending his talents to Hulu as the showrunner of Future Man. So take a listen to our interview that we had with him, uh, gosh, many weeks ago, but still previewing this show that I think you'll enjoy that starts on November 14th. Hi, Ben. Hello. Thanks for joining me today. No problem at all. This is a show that I've only seen the first episode of, but um, from what I've seen so far, it looks really cool. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, I think it gets better. (laughs) I hope so. Pilots are tricky, but uh, yeah, no, it's a cool show. It sure is. And here's an interesting thing I want to start off with, because technically you weren't on the Sausage Party team, but you did receive a special thanks credit in that movie. (laughs) So how did that little nod end up with you as showrunner for Future Man? Because most people associate you with the Colbert Report or Daily Show or Modern Family. Well, I did. There is, if you... uh do the Venn diagram of my career and Seth and Evan's career, you will find 
the overlap on the movie 50-50, which ah. we produced together. I worked on that movie and uh, as a producer with Seth and Evan, and Kyle and Ariel were these young gunslingers just coming up from the mean streets of Canada. Uh, <laughs> and I met them, and we became uh, really good friends uh, during the making of that movie. So kind of ever since then, we've all kind of stayed in each other's orbit, and I always go to you know those screenings and you know give notes on scripts. So you know I've kind of maintained a relationship with uh, those guys for ever since we did that movie together. So when they uh, were converting this from the feature project into the TV project, you know they were looking for someone who had you know a lot of experience in TV, and uh, that was me. So I jumped at the opportunity to work with those guys again. Now, being a showrunner on a time travel show can be kind of daunting because there's a lot of time periods and paradoxes to deal with. How complex will it be getting and how many time periods are we visiting? You know, it, it's pretty complex, I'll say. And we did, uh, there was some assigned reading uh, about with some time travel books. Fortunately, there was a book that just came out called, I think, Time Travel or A History of Time Travel which was kind of like an academic, you know, pop academic, but like academic kind of tome on the subject that kind of dealt with all the paradoxes. And, you know, because the show itself is so steeped in, you know, pop culture and, you know, we just kind of embraced that and recognize there's going to be paradoxes no matter what. You just have to pick your paradoxes. And, and, and because the show can be kind of winky and cheeky and kind of self-referential, kind of acknowledge it and uh, kind of have the best of both worlds. You know, the most important thing for us by far was to try and treat the time travel, you know, with as much integrity, you know, as we could, um, because if you don't care about the rules, then there's no reason for the audience to care about the rules. So we really spent an inordinate amount of time focusing on, okay, like, let's just like logic this out using our logic, even though we know you can always find a a flaw in it. I mean, every great time (laughs) travel, you know, piece of fiction has that kind of fatal flaw that people like take delight in pointing out and i'm sure i hope that will happen with our show well that's great to hear and uh one of the things i enjoyed seeing in the first episode was seeing glenn headley again and with ed bagley jr no less playing the parents of josh the main character in the series despite her tragic death in june during production so was there a certain effort to get these particular actors for these roles who evoke this sense of nostalgia because glenn is always going to be the jackal in Dirty Rotten Scoundrels for me. Right. And Ed right. is Ed is always going to be that mockumentary actor from Spinal Tap and Christopher Guest movies. Yeah, so sure. is, that, is that a purposeful decision? Well, I mean, only purposeful in the sense that they're great actors and that we, <laughs> you know, really, you know, to do comedy, you know, I mean, I think what's great about Seth and Evan and, and you know, it's not just about getting like the funniest people. It's about getting people who are going to be great performers and kind of let the material do some of the lifting and let the performers do their work. And so I think it was the effort was to like, let's just make sure we get really good people. I don't think there was necessarily, I mean, I think Seth and Evan had worked with Ed before. I'd never worked with Ed before. So I think there was some familiarity there. And, you know, these kind of parent roles can sometimes be thankless roles in these, in these types of movies and TV shows. So I think it was really important for us to try to you know, and you're just, you're, we're just scratching the surface really in the pilot, but we really try to create these kind of 
singular characters and the singular relationship that you don't see quite as often in these types of projects. You know, it's a, it's a really interesting relationship that kind of evolves, you know, over the course of the season between Josh and his parents and between, uh, you know, Tiger and Wolf and, you know, who kind of become the surrogate parents uh, in this timeline for those characters. Now, you do have a lot of references to movies of the past, which is also where I got that nostalgia vibe. Yeah. So how do you walk that fine line between paying homage to movies like The Last Starfighter, Back to the Future, and Terminator without outright being derivative of them? Well, I mean, I mean everything, you know, to one degree or the other is derivative of something else, <laughs> you know, and it's yeah, just yeah. a question of... In our story, you know, the, in the writer's room, you know, the most important part of that process is like in breaking story. And when you're breaking story, you know, you're always asking the question of, uh, you know, have this been done before? How has this been, been done before? Like if we are doing something that's treading into familiar territory, are we putting a fresh spin on it? And it's just about being really mindful of that and not really – um, you just have like this internal barometer, I guess, for no, that's too close to something <laughs> that I've seen done elsewhere, you know, or, you know, we, there's a version of this because we're doing it this way that will be fresh and fun to an audience. And I think, you know, it's a constant struggle, but I mean, I think the only thing you have kind of as like a writer in this, you know, in this kind of endeavor is kind of like your own sense of integrity. And, you know, we'd like the last thing we'd want to do is like rip off shamelessly something else that we respect you know and not kind of add in some way to the you know kind of the canon so I, you just hope that people view it that way because it was certainly our intention to not be you know it's referential but we we felt like the, we need the show to kind of stand on its own as like a really interesting kind of sci-fi comedy and put all of our storytelling to that kind of litmus test and if it doesn't like if it doesn't meet that then we have to go back and do it again yeah well i think in that sense science fiction comedy gets a little bit more leeway <laughs> yes definitely definitely but speaking of the comedy of the show is there anything about this series that lends itself well to being aired on a streaming service like hulu as opposed to a traditional network perhaps some of the raciness oh my god <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah i mean uh, it's not just the fact that we had the freedom to kind of use language that was more the parlance of our, you know, our world and our characters and, you know, and, and it's really more than anything, because I've been in the network television, you know, world for a while and I've kind of done both cable and, you know, network television. It really was like the willingness to accept like, the audacity of some of our premises and, it doesn't conform to kind of any idea that like a traditional network and even a lot of cable outlets might have about, you know, storytelling and about what constitutes a show and what constitutes a comedy. And obviously there's like a big flattening happening right now in the comedy world where you have shows that are fantastic shows, you know, better things and master of none, you know, shows like that, that, you know, that kind of, aren't traditional shows either, you know, in the, in the way that we've come to understand them, like, you know, kind of growing up, but this show, because of the bigness of the concept, those shows are kind of lower fi. This show is kind of like very, very kind of high concept mashup. And I guess, you know, there's the Orville and there's other shows that are kind of starting to do this as well. And I think they tried that kind of serial type show, serial comedy uh, that uh, was on BC about the, the case with John Lithgow. I'm forgetting the name of it. So I think they are getting a little more experimental in what they call comedy, but 
I certainly had never experienced this kind of absolute creative freedom to just kind of try to do something singular and, and, I, and it's a freedom that I've only experienced uh, at this, in this project really. Well, it certainly seems to be turning out well for you and I can't wait to see the rest of the episodes. Yeah. But thanks again for uh, talking to me today about the show. My pleasure. Okay. Once again, future man drops all 13 of its episodes on November 14th. I highly, highly encourage you to check it out. It's a lot of fun and hopefully you got a sense of that from Ben Carlin, who was nice enough to talk to us about the show. Well, Dave, that's going to be it for this very long edition of Sci-Fi Fidelity. We hope you enjoyed our discussion. We had a lot to talk about with many episodes of both of our show topics. You can keep it going all month long by following us on social media. We're on Facebook and Twitter as Sci-Fi Fidelity, and we'll be sharing our discussion topics with you once again next month. Yeah, and in December, we're considering looking at Marvel's Runaways and maybe even Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Not sure quite yet. If all goes well, we're going to have an interview with somebody from the librarians, which starts season four next month. So fingers crossed there. But in the meantime, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you access it. We're on iTunes, Stitcher and SoundCloud. Plus, we take suggestions for future topics. Just let us know what you'd like us to talk about on social media, or you can send an email to sci-fi fidelity at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next month. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.